It's Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Yeah, so it's Genesis chapter 11, starting from verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shina and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and putumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse the language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over over the face of all the earth. Thank you, Karen, for reading. Um, hello, everyone. It's it's lovely to see you all here, if only virtually. And then uh, just want to echo what Joel was saying, especially warm welcome to those who, who are new to Covent Garden who've joined us recently. Um, it's great to have you here. It's also great to have this chance to have a look at this passage from Genesis 11 with you. I'm going to pray now for God's help as we do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here today. We thank you for the technology that allows this to happen. We thank you for your word, which you've given us in Genesis. And we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we look at it now and seek to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I know we've all been in lockdown only for just over a week, but um, I thought we could all do with a bit of a pick-me-up. So in, uh, in light of today's passage, I thought we'd start by watching a TV clip, if um, my glamorous assistant Joel is going to put it on the screen, um, just showing sure. the evolution of the world's tallest buildings. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, so we had to stop it there because the, the next building that comes along, I think, is one that's not yet built, uh, the Jeddah Tower or something. But um, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? If, you, if you'd watched that all the way through, it goes from the last 150 years showing how all these uh, enormous buildings have been built, one taller than the previous one. Tallest building in the world today is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, and it stands at 828 metres. 
that is just over half a mile high, half a mile. You'd be pretty pleased if you'd built that, wouldn't you? Mankind really is capable of, of amazing achievement. And I'm actually reminded of that every day. I get these daily uh, update emails from various people. One of them likes to include all sorts of interesting snippets uh, in his daily email that's actually nothing to do with investment. And at the bottom of his email, as part of his sort of email signature, he includes a list of 10 reasons to be happy. And here's, here's a couple of them. Deaths from hunger are down 98% in the last 100 years, despite the world population having grown four times. The world's nuclear arsenal has been reduced by 85% since the 1980s, when it was at its peak. And in the last 20 years alone, the proportion of people living in extreme poverty has halved. It's inspiring stuff, isn't it? Makes you want to think, well, yes, there are some big issues around that we're facing at the moment, quite apart from COVID, but mankind really has made and really is making incredible progress. We're reducing poverty, we're wiping out disease like polio, we're living longer, we've put men on the moon, we've mapped the human genome, we've invented cars that can drive themselves, and we've built buildings that are over half a mile high. But we're doing it all without God. We live in increasingly secular societies that have turned their backs on God. The worldviews, philosophies, and ideologies of today leave no room for God. Just think of atheism, communism, humanism, postmodernism, or consumerism. We worship the gods of money, sex, power, popularity, as we pursue self-realization, self-gratification, and self-worth. We see God as a nuisance, a, a killjoy, someone who's wanting to limit our fun. We want to do what we want, say what we want, go where we want, and make as much money as we want, all with no one telling us whether we're right or wrong, or giving us guilt trips. Some of you may remember Tony Blair's spin doctor, uh, Alistair Campbell, saying to the media, we don't do God. Well, actually, the world doesn't do God. The world doesn't want God around, he gets in the way. We want to live our lives on our terms without being impeded by God. And by the way, we're doing pretty well without him, aren't we? Look at all this incredible achievement. But how will God deal with a world in rebellion against him? A world that tries to flourish without him? Will God allow that flourishing to continue? Well, we've seen in Genesis so far that God will act against human rebellion, against human pride, to limit chaos and wickedness in the world. He acted in judgment against Adam and Eve, against Cain, and then against the whole of mankind with the flood. So we know that God does act in judgment against human rebellion. But we also know that there won't be another flood because God made a covenant saying he will never again destroy mankind with a flood. So how will God act against human rebellion? Well, let's see what the passage says. Just if you're following on the guide that Joel sent you, we're now... Uh, at point two on the um, main point. So God will act in judgment against human rebellion and pride to limit chaos. Chapter 11 actually begins with a flashback. I spared Karen from having to read through all of the genealogy of chapter 10, but if we had waded through it, we would have, had, we would have read a description of the family lines of Noah's son, sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So chapter 10 describes a world divided into many peoples, many clans and many languages spread out over the earth after the flood. 
So you might be thinking, well, when did that happen? When did they all disperse? Well, chapter, tell, chapter 11 tells you how this has happened. It's a flashback taking us back to a time before the world was divided. You see the opening verse of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So chapter 11, the narrative of the Tower of Babel is a description of how the world came to be divided into many peoples with many languages. So looking at the start of chapter 11, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the, in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now Shinar is another name for the area around Babylon or Babylonia, which is east. We know from the early chapters of Genesis that east is away from God, away from his presence. So anything to the east is not good in this context. So this is a bad start. And these people are an ambitious lot. Have a look at verse three. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they want to build a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. They want to produce something really impressive. But notice the significance of this. It seems it's not simply enough to build an impressively tall tower. They want its top to be in the heavens. The builders are wanting to encroach on God's dwelling place in the heavens. This is God's dwelling place, and they want to gate crash inside. They fail to recognize that this is a boundary that they shouldn't cross. They fail to see that God is different from us. He is holy. We are not. They're putting themselves on a level with God. They are vying with God. They are refusing to live within God-given boundaries, just like Adam and Eve did. So there's a problem with their aspirations, but there's also a problem with their motivations too. Why do they want to build this city and tower? Well, the second half of verse four, they say, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So their primary motivation for this project is that they want to make a name for themselves. They want to do something which gives them significance, which gives them status, which leaves their mark on the world. It's an expression of human pride, and pride is the ultimate rebellion against God. It's putting, our, it's putting our own will above God's will. It's taking on the belief system of the serpent rather than that of God, as we saw in Genesis chapter three. And we see that in life today all around us. Someone starting to act differently when they get promoted or moved into a position of power. Maybe they start throwing their weight around and looking down on people who they used to treat as equals. Or others who come into the public spotlight and allow fame to go to their head. I was listening to Desert Island Discs the other day when Ian Wright, the former Arsenal footballer, was being interviewed. He was incredibly honest about how his fame had gone to his head in his early life. He said this. Thank you. So Ian Wright said, you start to say, I'm kind of invisible. Nothing can hurt me. You kind of start feeling you're breathing different air you start to think you're a bit special. Genesis 1 verse 27 tells us that God has made mankind in his own image. Humanity automatically has self-worth because God made us in his image and he loves us. When humanity tries to make a name for itself, it's rejection of its creator. It's effectively saying that we 
don't see the value that we have in God. When we live without reference to God, we have to give ourselves meaning. We have to make a name for ourselves to give ourselves significance through our achievement, through having a successful career, through the relationships we have, through the fortune that we make, through being well thought of by those around us. We feel that these things will give us a security, a status, which once achieved will make us invincible. It's an attempt to create a sort of paradise, our own version of Eden, with no reference to God. It means we rely more on ourselves and less on God. This is pride and God hates pride because it ruins our relationship with him. We don't recognize him for who he is, God. It also ruins our relationships with those around us because pride promotes self-interest above that of others. God's word in the Bible is full of warnings about how God will punish human pride. He says in Isaiah 2 verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. It's pride that drives the builders to want to make a name for themselves. But that's not all. The builders say, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they don't want to be dispersed over the earth. This is also in direct rebellion against the Lord. In, in chapter nine of Genesis, in verse one and verse seven, he says these things. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's verse one. In verse seven, he repeats it. He says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So after the flood, God specifically commands mankind to be fruitful and to fill the earth. They're supposed to be dispersing throughout the earth. And yet here we see the builders in willful rebellion against God. They're doing the exact opposite of what God has commanded them to do by staying where they are. So these people are in direct rebellion against him. They want to break boundaries by entering into God's dwelling place. They want to establish a city and a tower that will make their name great. They refuse to disperse as God has commanded them. They're trying to create a paradise on earth, absent of God, out of human pride. It's a depressing picture. So how will God act? How will God deal with this world in rebellion that's trying to flourish without him? Well, let's see. Verse five of the passage is the turning point when we see God act. Verse five says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's a bit of ironic comedy here in that the Lord has to come all the way down to see this amazing example of human achievement. You can sort of imagine the scene, God saying, uh, so, so where is this tower? And the builder saying, well, it's, it's here. Look, it's enormous. And God saying, sorry, uh, I, I can't see it. Well, is it that thing over there? No, look, it's here. God's saying, well, I've got my binoculars out, but I, I just can't see it. Okay, look, I'll come down. So down he goes. And it continues in verse, verses six to nine. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
So a project that started with so much bravado, such willful resolve, such lofty ambitions, and God stops it in its tracks just like that. You can imagine the piles of bricks just lying there, the, the unfinished walls, the weeds growing out of the tower, crows nesting in the top. God disperses humanity across the whole earth, just as he had intended, and he confuses their language. But why does he decide to do this? What's the impact of this judgment by God? Well, as we have been dispersed across the earth with different languages, we've developed different nations, tribes, cultures, customs, and identities. And these differences have given rise to division, tension, misunderstanding, and rivalry as we clash with each other. The history of the world is one of warfare and rivalries as nation struggles against nation for power. Just look at the last hundred years alone, two world wars, the Cold War, the oil crisis in the 70s, the Balkans crisis, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and now the deepening rivalry between the US and China. All this is given added poignancy by the fact that we've just had Remembrance Sunday. That's at a corporate level, but it affects us on an individual level as well. And I've experienced it myself. About 20 years ago, I spent six weeks traveling in China. I naively thought I'd get around using a Chinese phrasebook, but that quickly proved a non-starter. The first time I took a taxi, I carefully counted out a couple of extra yuan to give to the taxi driver as a tip. Ten, ten seconds later, I had to duck as a couple of coins came hurtling back at me out of the window as he drove off. Thought maybe my pigeon Chinese had offended him, but I later learned that you don't tip in China. It's even considered quite rude. These divisions that we see between nations in language and culture are a divine judgment on human pride. Mankind may have escaped extinction in another flood, but sin has once again blighted human existence so that humans seem destined to suffer international rivalry and warfare for the foreseeable future. But why has God done this? Why has he consigned us to a world in which we can't, which we find it sort of hard to collaborate with each other, in which we misunderstand each other and in which we seem destined for ongoing struggle and war? Is it out of spite? Does he feel threatened by human progress? Or does he just want us to have a miserable time because of our sin? No, it's none of those things. We know that God loves us and wants what is best for us. No, God acts in judgment against our pride. It's not the building of the city and the tower that displeases God and causes him to act. It's the human pride that these people attach to the city and the tower that God will not abide. It's against human pride that he acts in judgment. And God acts against human pride, against human rebellion, to limit our ability to create chaos. We've seen throughout Genesis so far, for example, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, it was to stop them from eating from the tree of life and so being able to live forever. So God, present, God prevented mankind from achieving immortality as that would have allowed them to cause even greater chaos than they had already. It's the same pattern here. God has acted in judgment against human pride, confusing our language and dispersing us throughout the earth. The implication is that God acts like this out of love, because it would be a lot worse for us if he allowed human pride to go unchecked. Remember, we have taken on the mindset, the belief system of the serpent, the serpent in the garden. So if God didn't act, the chaos that ensued would be unimaginable. 
So God acts lovingly in judgment against human pride, to stop human chaos from spiraling out of control. So what should we take away from this? We're still building tall buildings. Should we stop? No, God is not against progress or achievement. He's against pride. God will not let pride go unpunished. God has given us all gifts and abilities and he wants us to use them, but not so that we should become proud. He wants us to use them for his glory. So we should ask ourselves, in what areas of our lives are we letting pride in? Where are we trying to build reliance on ourselves, on our achievements, rather than on God? God acts in judgment against human pride because he knows how damaging it is and he hates it. This passage is a warning of that. But there's also great hope in this uh, in chapters 10 and 11. God acts to limit chaos, but he also acts to accomplish his purposes. The builders were deliberately defying God as they didn't want to be dispersed. But in spite of this, we see that God accomplishes his will anyway. God's purposes for the world will be fulfilled. There's no stopping them. And we also see this in the description of the genealogies in chapter 10, and the second half of chapter 11, where humanity seems to be living with no reference to God whatsoever. But even so, he's still working out his plan for salvation because Shem's line eventually leads to Abraham and that will eventually lead to Jesus. So God is always at work. He's always working out his purposes for mankind's salvation. And the line of Shem points forward to this. And that's an indication that judgment is not the last word. A narrative that started with the whole world speaking a common language ends with the whole world confused and speaking different languages as a result of God's judgment. But one day, this judgment will be reversed. We see a small picture of this in, in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit depends upon, sorry, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus' disciples, acting as an antidote to the curse of confused languages and dispersion. Acts 2 says this. Now there, were, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, that's the sound of the Holy Spirit descending, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So as people unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ, God reverses the curse, meaning that everyone can understand each other. It's a reminder that God will ultimately reverse the curse when Jesus returns. The judgment of the dispersion in Genesis 11 will be reversed. There will be no more rivalry, hostility or warfare. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 2, he says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So we leave Genesis 11 with humanity under judgment, but Acts 2 shows us how that will ultimately be reversed. So how will God act against a world in rebellion against him? He will act against human pride to limit chaos. And we can trust that he is ultimately working out his plan of salvation for the world. As we finish, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Lord, we thank you that you are a loving father who created us, who sustains us and who loves us. We pray that you would keep us from being proud. 
and help us to find our meaning and significance in being created in your image as your children. And help us to look forward to that day when you will make all things new, when nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and we will live at peace with one another and with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.